Have you ever wondered what happened to the legendary Chuck Norris? I recently saw a health video he made and I was surprised. He's in his 80s and still seems to have his energy and health. He says he's even stronger, has more stamina, and plenty of energy left over for his grandkids since making one simple health change that helps his digestion and nutrition. He says he still feels like he's in his 50s. His wife made the same change and she's never felt better. She says she feels 10 years younger and she has energy all day. Many of us do not include the fruits, vegetables, and other herbs that increase health and energy in our own diets. Chuck Norris made a special video that explains how he incorporated these things with one simple product. You can watch it by going to mymorningkick.com forward slash Harris. It may change your approach to your own health. Once again, that's mymorningkick.com forward slash Harris. We are live now on the Conversations That Matter podcast. I'm your host, John Harris, and we're continuing a discussion of this book, Ideas Have Consequences, by Richard Weaver, written in 1948, if you can believe it. Again, you have your copy, too. Same copy. Um, we're going to... Actually, you know, I have three copies. I don't know how many you have. I have the Audible, I have the Kindle, and I have the hard copy, which... I think this might be the only book I have three copies in every format that I can possibly have. That's how important the book is to me, I guess. <laughs> but anyway, um, we're going to talk about uh, the book a little more today. It says that we have uh, one person watching. I don't know. if <laughs> Usually if I start a live stream, there's immediately there's like at least at least like 50 people. So it's oh, that's me. That's you. Was- You're the Another, another seven. That's that's interesting. I don't know what's going on. Maybe the algorithm is uh, set weird. We'll see what happens as we continue the podcast. Um, but we're going to go over a, a bunch of stuff today. And I know my dad might join us. But um, for those who don't know, who weren't here last time, my brother David is going to be joining us for this discussion. He's a school teacher down in Tennessee. He um, has taught high school history and ESL, uh, it's English as a second language. And um, and his uh, degree uh, is his bachelor's degree. Actually, is it your bachelor's or your master's that's in um, uh, English? I have a bachelor's degree in English literature with a minor in linguistics. And I have a master's of science in education, specializing in teaching English as a second language to speakers of other languages. So I'm, yeah. a, speci- I'm a specialist. My well, I was teacher. actually hoping uh, that you would give some of that insight that you have on ling- linguistics for the chapter that we're going to be talking about language, because some of it's kind of thick and it's, you know, the whole book is, is somewhat thick for someone who's just used to reading your average Christian books that, you know, pop books or whatever. Uh, This is going to be a a hard read and you might have to take it slower, but that chapter on linguistics, I think is especially difficult. So we'll uh, be picking your brain when we get there. Um, so let's oh people are saying things in the chat you might not want to look at it they're saying things like gordon i don't know what that means we'll just ignore that yeah i don't know who gordon is all right let's see a thing that comes up every time we do this it's weird strange strange Uh, i'm gonna pull up a summation i prepared and by the way if you're a patron you'll have access to this uh these are um, slides just summarizing each chapter and there'll be reference points for our discussion if i can pull it up so in the meantime, um, how's your day going? <laughs> <laughs> it's not quite over yet, but 
long, very, very long. I started a new, uh, like, part-time position, tutoring fourth graders in math today. So I stay longer, and um, I get to work with numbers instead of syllables and words for a little bit. Do you like that better or worse? It's not, it's, I don't know if it's better or worse. It's just nice to have a break when you're trying to teach people how to speak English. You kind of do a lot of the very like root, same rudimentary things all day long. So it's nice to have something that challenges you a little bit in fourth grade math. I actually find very challenging. So it works Good. out. <laughs> well, Richard Weaver would, would say that that's not the, uh, those aren't the disciplines that we need right now, but, but they are. I mean, they, even if he, I mean, he says to combat modernity, which we'll get to at the end. Uh, the present state that we're in, uh, we need an education of, he calls it logic and dialectic, right? Is, is one part. And then the humanities, I think in history, something like that, which, you know, is interesting because all the engineers are like, wait, well, why not our field? And he seems to think that it's, it's the uh, application of this idea that everything can be engineered, right? That is part of the problem. You remember, you remember in Dutch's the, we took that, well, everybody took that class, uh, social problems. And you remember one of the, oh, yeah. One of the views, like the three views, they, there's three views of the world. One is, oh, social... I still remember this. That's so weird. Yeah. Do you remember what so, they were? There was three of them. But yeah, they fit there right was in Marxist there. theory. There was, Mar this is what they, yeah, they told every incoming freshman it was Marxist theory, symbolic interactionism, right? And then structural functionalism. How the world do I remember that? That's weird. I remember it too, but structural, because I thought structural functional. Yeah, that makes sense. That's like, that's, well, the society is a machine and like, if there's a piece missing, which is kind of what he ends up, what he describes in chapter five. But then the other one was social conflict, which was basically just Marxism, which is communism. And then um, the other one was symbolic interactionism. And I kind of realized over the course of the semester, if you said, well, I'm a symbolic interactionist, it meant nothing. And it just meant like, well, everything is on like an individual level. And you could kind of like, that was the option if you didn't want to argue with like Marxists or right. whatever structural functionalists. So that was fun. I think I like the structural functionalism as I remember, but I was like, none of these are really Christian. So yeah. yeah. All right. Well, I'm uploading it right now. So you all be able to see this in a minute, but let me just start with, um, well, let's review. So we only went over three chapters last time in this book. We did chapter one, the unsentimental sentiment. Chapter two, the distinction and hierarchy, and then chapter three, fragmentation and obsession. And I don't know if that we can summarize everything we talked about, but uh, in fact, I'll let David do that since it's such an easy job. Now. <laughs> I, th I think overall, I think we sort of landed on um, that hierarchy has been diminished, that we can see evidences for um, the giving up of these transcendentals as richard weaver calls them but this idea that there's objective standards or categories of thought and and um being and and that we're all kind of lost at sea and and he makes these amazing predictions about what schools are going to be like what society is going to be like what, what's what it already was well some of it was happening in his day but it reads like a newspaper some of it you're, you're just amazed to find some of the insights he had and so um his thesis is that this philosophy called nominalism this uh, the, and I, I give it kind of a pop summary but this overturning of the idea that these there's these categories that being is intrinsic to the object so uh, this, this drove man to find try to find meaning inside of him instead of out there right 
that that has been pretty much the uh, has developed and become the main problem in Western civilization. And and I would agree with them. I think that's I mean, we could express it theologically with man wanting to be God, um, this babble instinct that man has to come together and reach the heavens. But we, Weaver looks at it in a philosophical way and approaching the problem the way Weaver does, I think, can really expand our understanding as Christians. Um, and, and it helps me at least understand the world I live in better and apply scripture to the things that I'm seeing because I understand better, I think. I have better insight into what I'm seeing. So, David, you want to give uh, any summation of what we talked about last time or do you think mine was fair enough? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think that's pretty good. Hierarchy is big. And then also there's a lot of talk about specialization. So like, how do you get, how, how is the idea of hierarchy undermined, um, you know, th- over the last few hundred years, I guess. Um, he's definitely very strong. Weaver's very strong in linking to um, the like medieval scholastics. So one question that I kind of was putting in my mind as I went through is what exactly like does he see as the idealized time? And he seems to definitely like, he kind of, it's like it's pre-Renaissance. That seems to be kind of where he, he wants to go. And and he talks a lot about the Greek. I mean, especially more in chapters like five and six, but um, uh, yeah, we've gotten away from uh, a sense of hierarchy. And I think is over, like if you had to boil down, it, it is a stream of consciousness book. So it's not, organized in the same way that a regular book would be organized necessarily. Um, but if you had to like give a summation, um, we are, um, we're sort of apart. Like we live lives apart, kind of like, um, fragmented, I guess would be the word that he would use, um, because of our loss of belief and confidence in something like a, a, um, a reality, a metaphysical reality, something beyond the, just the, the, like the, the drab lives that we inhabit. And so he has all these different, you know, reasons why that's, it's gotten that way. And um, the one that jumped out to me the most was specialization because of my own career and where I've seen that, but yeah. uh, Yeah. So we've lost hierarchy and we're fragmented because of it. Well, let's pick it up where we left off. Uh, This is, the summation I have of chapter four. I'm just going to read this to you and then we'll talk about it. And we'll, we're going to go uh, through five chapters today. So we'll go a little quicker. And then uh, if there are people who want to weigh in, we will take comments and calls from patrons. And then, of course, if you want to weigh in, leave a comment in the chat. Let us know you're here and uh, we will um, try to address whatever's in the chat. Before so, you go in, I think, yeah. I, think somebody's try, I think somebody's trying to get in. Someone's trying to get in yeah. to the... Uh, Oh no 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 no! I think I think that's someone who maybe later on is going to join us for. Uh, no, I think we're so. I think we're related to this person. Are they really trying to get in? Are you getting? Um, I've been. Yeah. I was just asked, have you been let into the streaming yet? Oh, huh. <laughs> well, um, you could probably tell that person <laughs> that uh, it's live right now, and they're the link. In fact, if you have the link, you can resend it. Okay, um, I'll, I'll send it. While I'm going over this. Okay. So, chapter four. Egotism in art and work. Weaver argues that in the pursuit of freedom from standards, man withdraws from the spiritual community, which leads to increasing selfishness, pride, and manipulation. The resulting ego, uh, egoists subordinate ends to themselves instead of themselves to ends, meaning purposes. They're, they 
don't subordinate themselves to the purpose they're created for. Instead, they try to make everything in creation suit their needs or their wants, their desires. People resent work because there is no desire to please their bosses who are no better morally than them. And they are engaged in satisfying consumer demands instead of producing quality. This has taken a toll in art, as evidenced by the romantics who denied original sin and revolted against intellect. The sentimental comedy, which reduced evil to mistakes. The expressionists who revolted against convention turning inward. Impressionism that assumed outline did not exist in nature. Musical forms like jazz with its lack of restraint. This is where David's going to be mad. Climax without titillation and reward without work. In each case, private experience determined reality and transcendentals were denied. Weaver encourages a return to viewing work as a divine ordinance with purpose and quality. So this is such an applicable thing. This is so important for uh, Christians living their lives, going about their day and wondering, what's the point? I get up and I go to work and I, w- whatever you are, you, you work in a factory, you, you work as a teacher, whatever system you're part of, what, what's the significance of that? Weaver says that we've lost some significance. There's something missing. And I think I can sense it around us, right? What do you think, Dave? Uh, 100%. I mean, the, his, the example I think he uses in chapter four is, I'm blanking if this is chapter four or three, I think it's chapter four, is um, working on the nuclear project, which... Manhattan you know, Project, um, yeah. Yeah, so I live about 40 minutes from where they created that city now. It's Oak Ridge, Tennessee. Um, and it's a fascinating place. I mean, they basically built an entire city that was secret. People didn't really know that it existed. In fact, just a little side note, the Oak Ridge Boys actually got their name because they were a gospel quartet that um, would be contracted to come in and sing and do live mm-hmm. entertainment for all the people who were living there in secret. Um, so, but his example, anyways, that's not really pertinent, but... Um, <laughs> uh they weren't jazz so they were they were fine they weren't jazz yeah it was gospel um they were you know gospel why they were while they were creating something that would wipe out hundreds of thousands of people um so his point basically is that you know um you know anybody who would have if there were people who were, were, I don't know, sweeping the floors of the factory for example so anybody who had a small contribution to this overarching project um, well, nobody really, if they would have like, maybe if they would have realized the weight of what was going on there, like what the actual consequence of using this weapon, um, would be, maybe they wouldn't have been okay with it, I guess, you know, which you, we could debate the, we could debate whether or not that was justified action, which we probably would debate, but, um, yeah, Weaver doesn't know, seem to think it is, but he doesn't No, he definitely doesn't think it is. Cause I, I, I mean, that's at least the the sense that you get, but it the point, and you could apply this to so many different inventions, so many different. Um, I think of all the people you know that work in tech, you know, because it's a you know they're good paying jobs, but you're you have a little piece of that thing that you do. You're specialized in this one particular area. Your job is to, you know, um, I think the example last week I was using was writing code. So like your example, your your purpose is to write code. Right. And you don't you don't give any thought to really what is outside of 
you know, like what you're contributing to on a grander scale, right? So, so I think some careers probably it's easier to fall into that than others because you know some some careers you kind of see that, like you see the fruits of your labor or you see exactly what your your work means right in front of you. You know, if you're a cop, right, you have a you have a pretty specific job. You know, you um, your job is to go out and keep things safe and to get home safely. And that's if if that if those two things were accomplished, you kind of had success in, in your position. But the over overwhelming majority of like careers of jobs that we have um, are, you know, you play a very small part in a very sort of grand in a big babble kind of. And it's right. not to say that obviously from Christmas perspective that you can't you know, serve, you can't honor and serve the Lord in those, like Luther said, a milkmaid and milks to the glory of God. But on a societal level, if like on a, on a, in a zoomed out view, um, you lose your meaning, you lose the meaning in your work. You're not working. Um, I, I well, I guess we'll get into that a little bit more in this chapter, but, um, I don't want to get ahead of us, but, uh, um, well, I don't want to spend a long time on each chapter since we have five of them, but you, the very title itself, egoism in art and work. Um, he says at the end, he goes, egotism, in work and art is the flowering after a long growth of a heresy about human destiny. That's pretty drastic language there. It's abhorrence of discipline and form is usually grouped with the signs of progress. It is progress for those who neither have a sense of direction nor want responsibility. The heresy is that man's destiny in the world is not to perfect himself, but to lean back in sensual enjoyment. Indeed, there is something expressive of both the philosophy and technique of artistic impressionism. And so he goes on uh, talking about he gives all these other examples from his time of uh, the art and the way work was viewed. Um, one of the things I thought was interesting is, you know, the, the Norman Rockwell painting, The Four Freedoms, right? Yeah. Freedom from want, et cetera. Right. He says programs like The Four Freedoms with their vague political unrealism, instead of helping the situation, serve only to codify error. It is the presumption of egotism, which renders people unfit for the philosophic anarchy they appear to think of. And uh, so anyways, well, uh, let me read this one last sentence and we'll comment. An ac ancient axiom of politics teaches that a spoiled people invite despotic control. In other words, he's saying something that Francis Schaeffer actually said. He says tyranny is on the horizon, guys. It's coming. And, and this is what happens. And, and you can see it in the art and you can see it in the work that people do. Craftsmanship has been being destroyed. People aren't taking pride in their work. They're not looking at it and saying, uh, I'm going to put my name on this. I'm going to put it out there because this is something that is, um, it, 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 well, it glorifies my creator. It's what I was meant to do. It's part of my design. I'm, I'm trying to match something in the created order. I'm trying to, to be the best version of myself, right? It, it, none of that. Um, instead, I think what's, happened is that people are like let me go to my job which is from nine to five and i'll work that job and i don't care about what i do during the day like in fact i'm going to try to be as unproductive as i possibly can be because my whole goal in being here is i want to buy stuff i want to have i want to have the video games or i want to have you know the a lifestyle of entertaining myself and I want to provide that maybe for my family too, but but that that's like a, a completely different way of viewing work. It's not a calling anymore. There's no purpose in it. Uh, the it's it's um not an end in and of itself. It's a means to an end, and that end is now gratifying yourself. It's egotism, right? It's all centered on you, and and so 
And he says the same thing's happening um, just all over the place, happening in politics. The Four Freedoms is an example of that, where now we're, we're going to change what freedom is. It's not it's no longer or liberty. You know, it's it's not uh, a gate that the government cannot trespass into into your private life because that's your responsibility that's not what it is anymore freedom from the government that the government won't go across that gate now we say government jump over the gate and while you're jumping over though please bring me something good bring be santa claus and bring me uh stuff from my neighbor's yard because the gate that you're jumping you know over to get into my yard is paralleling my neighbors and if you bring some of his stuff to my house i'll thank you for it so freedom from want means it, that's redistribution. That's taking from others. To, but but it's justified now because of egotism. And so um, he says, once you get rid of these transcendentals, once you get rid of these objective truths, this the way that we're supposed to live in nature that God created, um, and it all becomes a meaning and everything else is found inside you, this is part of the consequence of that. So, And it looks like uh, our father has joined the stream. So we're going to put him... Although, let's see, <laughs> we always see is the fireplace in that shot. So maybe you want to move the camera a little bit. I don't, I don't think I can move it from here. I'm new to this uh, format. But um, so, David, what do you think about uh, what do you think well, about that? Well, I mean, I, I kind of applied it to my own career because um, so in, in the teaching field, uh, which is a fairly broad like career area, but I have a very specific function, right? Um, I work, I mean, it's a, it's a, like. <laughs> I think the camera fell oh, over. I was like, <laughs> we need to get some specialization over there to Wappenders. Um, <laughs> uh, so with, within. <laughs> I mean, I could, I could uh, kick you out of the chat and let you come back in or we could That's just okay. walk. We could see, get a tour of the whole room. <laughs> so. The, the refinished uh, seven, 1700s, early 1700s farmhouse. Yeah. So now we're sideways. Well, uh, yeah, continue making oh, your oh. point. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, so, uh, I mean, you can definitely see this in the world of art. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll talk about teaching later. Um, so art has gotten so... Uh, pigeonholed into individualistic expression, uh, you know, and whatever it is, I mean, it could be literature, it could be, um, you know, it could be painting, uh, it could be, I think music is actually a particularly good example, because music has gotten so, um, uh, like, it's all kind of become the same thing. So country, R&B, pop, whatever it is, it's it's kind of the same the same beats, similar uh, progressions, but usually like the themes are very, um, they're very egotistical. They're, they become an expression of my feeling, my, um, you know, this is what, this is me. This is what I like to do. And th that's really the main theme. It's when you hear something that is outside of that theme, it sounds very refreshing. Uh, yeah. but that would be the crossover into art. So you, I mean, you especially hear that. I mean, like we grew up listening to country music. So you've really gotten that in the last few decades uh, with country because it's, hey, you know, this is my life. This is the way I like to live. This is where as you used to right. have really, really like profound kind of stories and themes. And there was usually a lot of um, like Christian ethic that was mixed in. So I, I don't I think you could pick really any art medium and you can see that kind of playing out in real time.
Yeah, no, that's that's a good point with the music. Um, because he's talking about jazz back in, in the '40s and how it's. Uh, I think one of his main complaints, this is how I view it at least, is that you know in classical music there's so much dynamics. There's uh, there's a build up. I mean, for those who just were, we just had Christmas last month. You know, the Hallelujah chorus. You don't just listen to the Hallelujah chorus, right? That you, you have to li listen to Handel's Messiah. And, I, and I've seen a live production of this and it builds up to the hallelujah chorus and it makes it that much more satisfying. You're just waiting for it when it comes. And he says, jazz gives you this instant gratification. It's, and it's, and it doesn't have the same, um, uh, structure to it. There aren't rules, right? That's the whole idea of jazz that, you know, there aren't rules. It's just whatever feels good. And, and so, you know, anyway, I think if he could see what you're talking about today with every genre has been sort of permeated by this hormone culture where it's not even, it's not even real culture. It's not even people who are um, talking about the life they live. I mean, some, they are to some extent, but they're not, they're not talking about the things that make their region significant or their family or their, what they enjoy things about God's creation that are unique or significant. Instead, it's all hormones. It's all just party till you can't party anymore. Drink as much as you want to drink. And then even the music is structured that way. And I, I don't be, believe in a devil's chord. I'm not saying this is like it, it's evil in and of itself. There's no like devil's beat or note, but it but there is a um, like the purpose of that so often, I think, is for dance clubs. It's for people to um, express themselves in very sensual ways. And, and that's the only flavor that makes it to like the top 40, it seems. Right. So I think so, if, and if I could just give a, if, like a quick, the, the jazz issue. So, cause if people have read it, it's a, that, that section is very confusing. I remember dad saying he was trying to figure out like, what is his issue with jazz? So in the context of, I think you're muted then, um, in the context of I am muted. When, oh, okay. when he, can you hear us? Yep. Yes. Okay, so in the context of when he's writing that, exactly what you're talking about, hormone culture, that would be jazz. That would be represented by jazz music, right? This is the late 40s. So, you know, what is our, I don't know, dance club, hyper-over-sexualized kind of music that you might imagine today, which is now is just like mainstream music. Um, back then, that would be best represented in jazz culture because jazz culture is being, that's the music you're dancing to. That's your right. clubbing music of the late 1940s. To put that into perspective... Um, in the 1950s, there were right there were more people who attended um, like concierto, you know, orchestral music than there uh, than there were going to baseball games. So, um, so the cult there was a the culture was more cultured if you want to use that terminology. So jazz though, um, I had an an experience a few years ago. I so I love jazz. I, I'm a big jazz person. Um, a few years ago, I went to a concert in Philadelphia to see a fairly prominent jazz musician. and I. But I didn't really know his music. So I listened to a little bit before we went to the concert. I was like, I don't know. This is okay. Um, so then when we got there, he uh, he explained. He said, well, I, I play easy jazz. Um, so I didn't know what easy jazz was. But it was strange because like there was a drummer, there was a bassist, a saxophonist, and a guitar, a guitar player, electric guitar player. And they seem to kind of be playing around with each other a little bit with melodies and syncopation, but it just seemed like they would just take turns completely grandstanding. I mean, the, the main guy was a yeah. trumpet player, so he's just going, he's, he's going real crazy. And like, but it was so like the whole purpose was to showcase, man, look, 
look how good I am. But because they weren't playing in unison, it was, it just, it sounded like kind of like noise. So when I did a little bit more research, I found, so easy jazz was actually what was just coming up, kind of what he's responding to. Easy jazz was taking off in the late forties. Um, and it was, you know, if you, if you take jazz all the way back to its origins, really like Dixieland. So that's kind of where it comes from. New Orleans, everybody playing a bunch of brass, but you're playing actual melodies. You're, you're, um, you are getting somewhere, but over the course of like 40 years from when it first developed in the early 1900s, it had become a yeah. much more egotistical um, music. Now, now it's gone completely crazy. And like, if you listen to a lot of modern jazz, it just sounds, it just sounds kind of, kind of lame. Now I would argue in the midst of that, there was some real genius and brilliance going on, but that's partially because I like jazz and I, you know, am looking for some reason to um, defend it. But yeah, a little bit. <laughs> you know, when it comes to like even the church, though, uh, Christianity, I think you see these same trends um, in because these forces that Weaver's talking about that affect all these industries, they it's not like Christian ministries are exempt from these forces necessarily just because they're Christian. And well, you do see that you do see that in Christian music as well. If you were going to go. On yeah, because I mean. The, the same trends have been reflected in, in the church. I would even argue you kind of even see it with like the conservative, um, what would you call it? Uh, modern hymnology, I guess. And I'm not to, a lot of that stuff is really, really great. And we sing those songs and everything, but um, where you kind of get to where everything just becomes kind of the same. Like, you know, you could sit down and write one of, one of those songs fairly easily um, the, the, the problem with pop Christian music, right. Is it's, it's become egotistical too. It's all about me. It's about, Oh, totally. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's what I was. Yeah. That's, that's perfect example of it. That the egotism has completely <clears throat> invaded the forms of worship that Christians use, uh, so often. And so it's, it's not about if you l open a hymnal, read some old hymns and then look at the top 10 songs, let's say that are being sung in churches and you're going to notice a huge difference. And, the main one is what Weaver's talking about right in this chapter that uh, there's it, it's instant gratification. It's um, it, it's very focused on the self and how one it feels and just trying to be in tune with feeling. And, and you have feeling in old hymns, but it's very structured. It's orderly. It's it's to conform oneself to a higher order to God's will. Um, and it's focused on that order. It's focused on God. It's focused on truth and truth takes a backseat in the new stuff. So, um, I agree, yeah. Jonathan. That's, I think I had to reread this se section to finally understand what he's saying about jazz and actually through the whole thing in arts. And that's exactly his point is that there was, there becomes a lack of structure. Uh, actually what he says about jazz, I think is a good, um, compilation of all that. Uh, page 78, jazz by formally repudiating restraint by intellect, by expressing contempt and hostility toward our traditional society and mores, uh, has destroyed this equilibrium. That destruction is a triumph of grotesque, even hysterical, emotion over propriety and reasonableness. Jazz often sounds up in a rage to divest itself of anything that suggests structure or confinement. And that seems to be his theme throughout all the arts is this move away from what he had talked about in the earlier chapters that's just expressing itself in a tangible way. When you guys were uh, younger and <clears throat> playing at church and stuff, I mean, how many times did I have to try and deal with some 
somebody, I'm a praise team, I want to be a, you know, rock star wannabe, you know, in a little church. Yeah, it's, yeah, that's exactly what he's talking about. And yeah, you really do see it in the, the rise in our society of a complete egotism uh, on the part of individuals. It's, it's all about them. They don't want to submit to anything else. They don't want to be part of a structure. Yeah. What's in your hand? <laughs> My hand? Oh, that's okay. Because it. yeah, it's coming in like loud on the camera for some reason. I was like, "What is? What is that?" It's a instrument of some kind. I put it away. Yeah, we're all fidgety in my house. Let's go to the next chapter because we're at this rate. We're going to be here till like eleven p.m., which can't can't happen. So let's try to keep this one short if we can. But the Great Stereoptagon is chapter five. Richard Weaver answers the question, how do you persuade men to communal activity without shared belief? Modern man does this by replacing religion with education through the great stereoptagon, which includes the press, the motion pictures and radio. Man absorbs approved views through faith in the written word. People are exposed to this mechanism because of appetite and prevalence. The mechanism sensualizes to hold attention and is universally accessible. Truth and reason are devalued. Materialism is supported. Simultaneous perception of successive events is replaced with successive perception, which destroys reflection and emancipates people from memory and faith. Voters have shorter attention spans. Weaver predicted that the stereoptagon would not forever unify different communities since people would become more suspicious of propaganda and dissatisfied with the stereoptagon's failure to satisfy. Now, I'll just briefly say this. This is an amazing prophecy that he makes here that the stereoptagon being the media industries, the newspaper, television, radio, he, he, so this is pre-internet. It's 1948. He's saying you have a multicultural community here. How do you keep them from dissolving? Because that's a big challenge, right? This is new. Modernity is new. All these people traveling from all over the world and settling with different religions and different you know, habits and every, all the rest. And he says, well, this is the way that conformity and or uniformity is maintained uh, is through these outlets, these media outlets. And what they do is they um, try to whet your appetite. That's the advertising. Right. And they they give you sensational news pieces that keep you glued to them. And um, and, and it destroys memory. It destroys that reflective element that used to be there. And and people are after something that uh, stimulates them instead of something um, that causes them to reflect. So it's 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 bad. <laughs> Basically, he said it's it's bad. But but it's the prophecy here is that though people are going to be bored with this, like or or not bored, but they're gonna they're gonna realize there's a failure to satisfy here. Like this, what what the TV promises you, it can't deliver. What those advertisements tell you you need won't actually. Uh, give you satisfaction. And, um, and so, you know, he didn't really say what was going to happen when people were dissatisfied, but I think the hope was that they would reject this and, and return to more, more reflective and sensible ways of living. So I'll just open it up. what do you guys think of this chapter? Either one. I thought he had a lot of good insights. Um, I, Obviously, he would like uh, to see a change. When he's writing 1948, TV was uh, something pretty novel for people. You know, what has happened now is, yeah, it's kind of fulfilled all the things he was talking about then. 
he goes pretty hard about after the newspapers and some of that is the sensationalism uh and he would like people to go back to something more reflective but he was didn't think that was going to happen um he attacked radio as just incessant noise in people's ears um keeping them from being able to think that's certainly prevalent now tv something's always on there's always some noise coming in you know uh, coming where you're not thinking you're never being quiet to think um he sounds like an old man though saying get off my lawn right that's how some people could probably take it it I, well they might but i think it has a lot more to do with the fact that people don't take the time to think they're not trained to do that anymore i, I at least i don't see that uh, their educational system is increasingly more with media uh, related instead of reading and contemplating and thinking uh, they're not challenged to write the, like they would have um, so people not being reflective is just whatever's coming in and then there's such an, a massive a massive amount of information dumped on you constantly no you're not going to remember you know the uh, the scandals from last year because well you got 24 7 scandals you know coming up what's the latest one and it's always the newest talking point rather than dealing with issues that are more substantial uh, substantial than that um which is one of the reasons we're doing this actually because uh you know if i just followed the news cycles all the time and just hey well, everyone's talking about it so we have to talk about it um and, that, and that's that's it and you never get to deeper foundational issues then it's hard to it's hard to progress in our understanding and um we just take every issue as if it's a self-contained issue, every issue by issue, instead of connecting them all into uh, what's the position we should have um, that, or, or what's the principle I should say, we'll go back even before position. What's the principle that I should have that will navigate the way that I think and live. And, and, and that will then guide you as you're looking at a plethora of issues, not just the one, but, it seems like today every issue that comes up and the news cycles are so short, they're like six hours, uh, a poll's taken, you know, every news organization has a poll that's taken. What do the people think of this? What do they think now? What did they think five minutes ago? Oh, it's different. Look, look at the change. And, and that now is like what determines policies, even in this country. Um, it's so unprincipled and yet, uh, it's, it's the way we live. And I think that's the great stereoptagon. Well, there's an additional aspect of that stereoptagon. He, he has a good discussion of it in all its ranges, whether it's uh, print media, uh, radio, television, anything like that. Because uh, underlying that also is coming a uh, view from the business, newspaper, publisher, TV studio, radio program, they've got to keep an audience coming in in order to generate revenue. So their means of production is to continually give you little tidbits and pull you into its cycle. We're certainly seeing the worst part of that now in the social media stuff like TikTok or well, even YouTube and stuff. There's always a, there's an algorithm always generating. Here's the next one on the same subject, the next one. And, oh, yeah. and then they can lead you uh, into something uh, completely contrary to what you should be thinking about um neil postman in his book amusing ourselves to death written in what the 70s i think it was he he actually 
you would have thought Richard Weaver would have wrote, written the two, you know, it's Neil Postman's Weaver's son on this issue because he, he pointed out the exact same thing. Yeah. And that's now a long time ago and it's a whole lot worse now. I'll, I'll say something um, quick about the Christian nationalist thing. Cause you know, Weaver's whole deal here is that it seems like the effort or and I might not even be conscious, but what keeps society uniform to some extent or on the same page culturally, which we, we can see is fragmenting now, is this great stereoptagon. I think this latest effort to craft some kind of a Christian nationalism, uh, some kind of a, a Christian basis for the country, and, and it's, it's, of course, very controversial and so forth. But I think what that is, is an attempt to replace the great stereoptagon. It's an attempt to say that there's something deeper that should bind us to each other and something that um, even in you know a multicultural setting uh, where people are different in many ways, at least there's a basic Christianity. That's at least the hope. That might be naive, but that, at least that's the hope, that there's a basic enough Christianity that we can have some kind of order. Right. Because if we don't have anything that glues us together, except, hey, we all like to be entertained by the same things. <laughs> we all like driving nice cars. That is a recipe for disaster. And and, I, and we're seeing it now. And I think Weaver kind of predicted this, that people would would not forever be uh, allayed by the stereoptagon. So, David, any thoughts before we go to the next chapter? Yeah, just a white pill, which is unexpected coming from me. But um so and 98 page nine towards the end of this chapter um he says there towards the bottom of the page if you're looking following along uh there are it is true certain hopeful signs of restiveness growing out of our condition most of us have observed among ordinary people a deep suspicion of propaganda since the first world war so um i over christmas i was reading a book about the christmas truce of 1914 and um, something hit me really hard that um, when I was going through this book uh, and making parallels and comparisons to what we went through with COVID. And I feel like the First World War may be in our in recent memory or semi-recent memory, uh, one of the best um, comparison events because you have basically mass propaganda on an, an insane level that falls on, um, you know, basically the entire world or, or, or large portions of the developed world, um, you know, virtually overnight. And you have this mass like mobilization and assembling of all these armies and everything. And pretty soon everybody's killing each other in Western Europe and, you know, Gallipoli and um, in the Middle East and even in Africa and, you know, on the high seas. And um, Russia plunges into a re revolution. It's one of the like largest events in human history. Um and then it's what's crazy is that like a couple years later, you know, it, it, it doesn't take long. And, um, you know, for reference, even Alvin York, you know, who's like the hero of World War One, even he was quoted like by the 1930s saying like, I don't know why we did that. I don't know what the point of that was really. Um, and you have a very similar, you know, thing going on now, but people just kind of move on and they're like, well, that was crazy. And it's like, yeah, there's, you know, 10 million less people on the planet now because we all because we More all than that was Spanish flu. Yeah. Yeah, look, I mean, just collective, collective insanity, uh, and, you know. And then there was certain people who really benefited a lot from from those events. Um, 
So uh, all that to say, that is not a white pill, but there is a white pill here because <laughs> um, he says there is because of these events, you know, because of this going on, there's a certain uh, quality of distrust that arises um, that actually um, makes people kind of wake up. So we've seen that. We've seen that now probably more than ever. I mean, I've made so many like personal changes because of a distrust of, of the, you know, the authorities that are, are feeding me propaganda. Cause I realized over the last couple of years that I was being fed propaganda. And so, you know, you take something like health. So when you can't trust your doctors anymore, when you can't trust people giving you medical advice, then you start to actually take your own health seriously. So that's the, um, you know, I guess that would be the upside of the, the great stereo stereo. Yeah. No, that's good. Um, people, people reject it after a while. Not everybody, but, you know. Well, you're seeing some of that rejection is the fact that there are alternative uh, outlets for information, just like even what this is, too. Uh, the Stereopticon, he was also saying that there was, I'm not going to say a conspiracy, because um, there wasn't. I think there may be one now, but they all kind of work together. Page 97, he said, the proprietors of the Stereopticon have a pretty clear idea of the level at which thinking is safe for the established order. They're protecting a materialistic civilization growing more insecure and panicky as awareness filters through that is over an, uh, filters through that is over an abyss. So we are seeing you know, some of that, and that's a good thing for alternative uh, sources of information. And uh, we have to support those things. Obviously, uh, big tech companies uh, and media, they're in cahoots with um, uh, the, well, the Democratic Party and progressives, even with Republicans. They only want certain information out. And yeah, definitely we saw that in the COVID response. Only certain information is going to be allowed. Otherwise, you're canceled. The cancel culture is part of this. Yeah. So, um, well, we got to move on to the next chapter uh, <clears throat> to cover the... We'll see how far we get. I think we can do it. I really do. Um, chapter. Oh, let's see. We already did. the. Okay. We're, we're up to chapter child. six now. The spoiled child psychology. Oh, this won't take long. <laughs> this is so uh, <laughs> everyone knows that this is going on. Um, and, and in ways now that I'm just amazed by. But Weaver argues that the recent prevalence of spoiled children is caused by a combination of factors relating to the rejection of transcendentals. All right. Remember, guys, whenever you hear transcendentals, we're talking about these universal absolutes that God has, has established uh, that flow from him, many of the, from, from his nature, etc. Well, romanticism replaced discipline with indulgence. Urban living prevented children from experiencing forces outside of man's control and fostered a utopian notion that devalued the necessity of work. Faith in the achievements of science destroyed masculinity. He's, this is 1948, right? The, the World War II guys have just caught home, and he's like, yeah, we're masculinity's being destroyed. Uh, as a result, Weaver believed the Soviets were in a better position to triumph because they believed in ideals, while the West would spend more money on military and bureaucracy to encourage egotists. Weaver believed religion, which taught delayed gratification and living for ideals, was a necessary remedy. Children needed heroes who exemplified exertion, self-denial, and endurance. So, this is a fascinating one because you see two things in this. Weaver makes a uh, prediction, and in that prediction, um, he's somewhat wrong, right? The Soviets didn't actually win, technically, or did they? I mean, the, uh, the cold, <laughs> yeah, the Cold War. You know, 
it it, uh, it, it fell. Uh, the Soviet Union fell. But, you know, we also have the fact that um, the communists now are in our own society, that that this country that we have has kind of morphed into socialism, which, by the way, is one of those brilliant observation Weaver continually makes is that finance, capitalism and communism have certain things in common. And and actually, there's there is a progression that takes you from finance, capitalism to communism. And, and he's very specific on what that finance capitalism is. It's not just it's not free market, guys. So if that's what you're thinking he's talking about. That's not exactly it. No. But um, and we'll talk about that maybe a little later. But um, but he so he makes this prediction. And and part of what he's saying, though, is actually right that the West, th this is exactly what the West is like today. We spend more money on the military. You spend tons of money. The, the benefits that you get now from joining the military, you know, it's not about defending your country for most people that are joining. Probably it's, you know, I'm, I, I don't want to smear the military, but I'm just saying that th they have to make these huge incentives to get people to even sign up. We'll pay for all your college. We'll give you this $10,000 sign on bonus. We'll, you know, we'll, we'll do so many things for you because people aren't, they're not willing, I think, to go out and just, so there was actually a poll done. Um, what if Russia invaded the United States? And it was like, it was for Gen Z. It was like less, I think it was like 75% said they wouldn't fight for America. It was crazy. I remember seeing this poll being like, what in the world? Um, but because of that, you spend more money on the military and you also spend more money on bureaucracy. And that's exactly what our budget's eaten up with today. So, so we're all spoiled children now. Like what he said came true. And here we are. And that's, I think, the fear uh, that some have is like, well, if, if we've lost masculinity and if it's all about ease and comfort, the Muslim world doesn't seem to have this as much. Right. Oh. Um, the communist world doesn't seem to have this quite as much, even though they're dealing with it, too. So what does that mean? All right. Well, let's open it up. Uh, either of you. What do you think it means? What do we think the. Yeah, well, what do you think? The masculinity? Yeah, well, Weaver's predictions, I think, on that front are correct. And what? we don't have the same kind of masculinity. Where do you see it? Um, I guess number two, twofold. Where do you see it manifesting itself, especially within the church? And then number two, where do you see the solution? Because Weaver gives a solution, but he's I, I don't know that it's the most practical. I don't think he intends for it to be practical. It's just we need to get back to religion which taught delayed gratification. In other words, he doesn't see a hope without getting back to Christianity. Um, exertion, self-denial, endurance. We need heroes. If we, we don't have heroes anymore, really not real heroes. So, so, so what, well, how do we get back to, to uh, well, sacrifice is part of what he talks about there. Uh, it was interesting. What he said is why would, are we, we're spending a lot of money on military predicted we'd be doing that, but it's what, what are we defending? we're not defending our ideals. We're defending a comfort level. And that ends up how we end up reacting to these wars afterward is okay. We just return back to our, our comforts and instead of recognizing we actually fought for ideals, uh, there is something that we should be standing for. And that that's part of the uh, destruction of our own, uh, identity as a nation. What are we, you know, I don't think most people can say that. But since you've brought it up in the church, I do see the same thing happening is why are so many pastors afraid to preach what the scriptures say? And it's going to go back to is they want their people want to be comforted. They want to feel comfortable. They want to leave feeling like 
you know, God loves them. It's never going to correct them. It's not about them understanding who God is and aligning themselves with God. It's instead the message becomes God. Uh, well, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life according to whatever it is that you desire. So we're going to morph God to your pleasures. Uh, that's why we've seen uh, so many of the evangelical churches have gone into an entertainment mo mode. You know, you have a, a stage up front. The audience is, you know, it's darkened. You got spotlights up there. You got near professional singers and the congregation is the ones who are doing the worship is supposedly the worship team up front uh so we've that's all changed around but all that goes back to comfort the um uh, certain theological positions the health wealth prosperity gospel has all been about comfort and so what weaver says here applies directly uh in the church on, on these areas we're we're dealing with spoiled children in the church so who's willing to sacrifice? Who's willing to uh, give of themselves to help somebody else within the congregation who's, you know, got real troubles? Uh, what are you willing to do personally to go help people? And no, we have spoiled children. They want to come um, to the marketplace, the church. Who can give me the uh, the most satisfying experience for my time? Because I'm probably not going to give any money to them either. Yeah. And, you know, the social gospel stuff is the same thing on a different level because it's it it also reorients the mission or purpose of the church to fulfilling some kind of man that need that man has instead of um, being kind of a, a an outpost of heaven and, and a place you go to for spiritual help and consolation. It has it has to have a social utility to justify its existence. Exactly. And 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 that's why, um, you know, it's interesting that so many of the social justice type folks love to criticize the how the prosperity gospel and or the seeker sensitive movement, because they'll say, well, they were just focused on individuals. We should focus on the collective. And it's like, but both of you guys are you're you're focused on man. You're not focused on God. Exactly. So, um. Yeah, that's a that's a good point though in the church, uh, David. What do you think? Well, you, I mean, you're talking about the church, so I'm thinking about like the cross section of kind of the the big Eva narrative. So, like, you know, when I was when I was in my late teens and early twenties, I I spent a few years going back and forth between uh, here and Mozambique and South Africa, um, you know, as like a short term missionary, I guess. And you know, I was really excited and, and inspired by. Um, a lot of the kind of like David Platt radical kind of, I don't know, uh, narratives that were kind of going on at the time, you know, don't waste your life was a, like a big favorite book of mine and stuff. And um, when I came, I came back to the States, I got really sick and I came back here and um, I was sick for several years with like stomach issues and I had back surgery and I had a whole bunch of problems. And over that time um, I kind of noticed that a lot of, it just seemed like a lot of the, the people that, seemed really amped up about, you know, kind of like, we're going to go out and we're going to kind of conquer the world for Christ and all this stuff. Um, like they all kind of, everybody kind of did the same thing. They settled into suburban, you know, neighborhoods and, um, you know, got Netflix subscriptions and Hulu subscriptions and kind of worked for Verizon and, um, <laughs> and, and for different corporations and stuff. And, and I, I got discouraged because I was like, what happened to this, you know, kind of like, 
because at the time it did seem very manly, like, hey, you know, something I aspired to as a man and our heroes were, um, you know, these missionaries. But, you know, what you just said about heroes, I think, is is part of that. Like, um, most of our heroes have been assassinated. Would be The only hero we're really allowed to have anymore is Martin Luther King Jr., which is interesting, like in the evangelical um, church. Yeah. So most of most of our most of our characters have been uh have been assassinated. Uh, the people that we would look up to, the people that you know we would teach our children, like these are people worth emulating. You know, and uh, for like a you know a, I guess kind of a dramatic example. So like right above me here uh, at my desk, I have a um, a portrait of General Charles Gordon, who was a um, not Gordon Sanchez, Charles Gordon, who was a um, <laughs> who was a general in the British Army, and he basically like single handedly crafted the defense of uh, the city of Khartoum in the late 1880s and the the image is of him standing kind of like defiantly and there's all these um they were called mahidas they were basically muslim terrorists and uh they're getting ready to spear him to death and he's just looking in that defiantly so he's about to die um and you know he was a very like kind of he was a very principled man he had his flaws but like you know it like this is a man so i had this image above me for years because I'm like, that's, you know, that's what I really want to aspire to. Well, I, I don't hear that at church, really. I don't hear um, things like that, that like men, you know, go out and do manly things. And I think part of that would be who we aspire to, to be like in terms of heroes, you know, and we need, we need tangible heroes. We need flawed heroes. We need to, um, it, but we need people who are, are like worth emulating. Um, and as an educator, you know, I think that's a big thing, thing for me. The other thing would be like, um, you know, the lack of manliness, we, I mean, he talks a lot about comfort. So one thing that, um, I was thinking about when I was reading chapter six, that really, really terrified me and kind of creeped me out was, um, so we're kind of addicted to comfort. And he, he mentions that, um, uh, where is that? It's in chapter six. I had it written down. Um, Basically, the end of life is comfort, right? That's the whole purpose, kind of like you just said. Um, and and you think of that like in the context of COVID. So you imagine, you know, the, the last couple of generations that we've had, your whole life has pretty much been about comfort. And that's been the chief aim, right? So you go to your, you go to your job, you work so that you can have these material comforts. Um, and like, how did your life end? If you were in your 50s or 60s or 70s or 80s, um, you got COVID and then you got pneumonia and maybe you wound up in a hospital. And all throughout this, like all throughout this time, even though you're you're kind of miserable, even though you're sick, you're just you just keep getting like drugs and things to sedate you so that you're comfortable through this whole experience. And then at some point, your soul disconnects from your body and you're dead. But you were comfortable. You had some like measure of comfort. The goal was comfort the entire time. There was never any connection to like pain, suffering, to let you know that you're alive. You know, and I think that's like a gross example of kind of where we're at culturally, because we don't have connections to, yeah. um, you know, what makes life life. It's so Soma, that. right? Is it Soma from uh, Brave New World? Yeah, you we just, just take uh, Soma. Numb yourself. Um, I'm going to go to John. Uh, so we have some folks um, in the StreamYard uh, video chat. We'll, we'll get back to the book, but I want to go to one of the uh, people who called in, John, and just see what's on his mind. Uh John, can you hear me? We'll wait for John. See if he. Uh... 
I think sometimes people his, his mic is muted. Oh, his mic. I didn't. Did I mute his mic? Oh, I don't know, but it looks like I can't mute. unmute. Your guest needs to do it. All right. Well, John, um, I'm going to leave you in the chat for a moment. If you want to unmute your mic, I'll come back to you. Uh, so let's let's move on to the next chapter then while we're waiting for John. Um, and let's talk about property, the last metaphysical right. Weaver argues that acceptance of the concept of private property with its self-justifying quality of hisness can serve as a defense against modernity. Weaver writes that property rests on pre-rational sentiments in that we desire it not merely because it keeps the man up. This would reduce to utilitarianism, but because somehow it is needed to help him express his being. His true or personal being, by some mystery of imprint and assimilation, man becomes identified with his things, so that a forcible separation of the two seems like a breach in nature. Weaver believed finance capitalism, with its concept of abstract property, severs the relationship between man and his product, opening the door for degrading value and totalitarianism. He predicted that a rising police state integrated with big business would threaten the right to private property. In turn, men would lose character as communistic organization replaced man's responsibility to order his own house. Weaver advises a return to a belief in providence that would encourage responsibility and reduce the effects of statism. The moral solution, he says, is the distributive ownership of small properties. These take the form of independent farms of local businesses of homes owned by the occupants where individual responsibility gives significance to prerogative over property. Weaver believed the world was starved for value and needed to return to honor and craftsmanship. There is so much to unpack here, and we won't have the time probably uh, to do all of it, unfortunately. But let's let's start in with this. Weaver says that property, that, that there, there's no reason to justify it upon utilitarian grounds, which is one of the, the main issue i think that he keeps coming back to with um nominalism or this this notion that there aren't these universal absolutes these categories these broad categories these forms uh he keeps coming back to everything then just gets reduced man gets reduced work gets reduced reduced to what though it gets reduced to this pragmatic utilitarian and he even brings in darwin i believe in this chapter darwinian kind of notion of just it, it's it's survival it's comfort it's pleasure these become the ends of life instead of and these selfish things instead of um blessings that you experience along the way but they're not means to ends they're ends and you know in this section on property um he's he's basically saying that there is this one area that we haven't completely abandoned yet. We've abandoned all these other areas and we've just basically said, yeah, you know, it's all about pleasure. It's really, there's nothing transcendent here, but he said with property, it's self justifying. We don't have to argue based on utilitarianism. We don't have to say, well, it benefits us. Therefore he, he said, no, it, there's just this quality about it. The fact that it's yours mean you are, you're attached to it means you have a right there and, and the state can't impose itself onto that right. Now, here's the question I have is what would he think if he were to live today and hear the World Economic Forum saying. You will have you will own nothing and be happy. I was thinking about that the whole time, how prophetic, because he's, he's concerned 
that big business and the state are going to merge together and create this nightmare, this police state that surveils you. He even gives um, the example of the New Deal and how the IRS was weaponized against political opponents of the Democrats. I was like, wow, that sounds awfully familiar. He's saying this in 1948. It's in, in one of the footnotes. And, um, and, and so he fears that this is going to happen. And we have lived to see the day that it's happening. And I, and I am afraid to say that Weaver, what he was hoping would happen, which is that we would get back to this idea that there's providence, that God's given each person stuff um, to, to, to manage and to, um, to steward well. And, and there's a connection to then to the past. And I mean, you see this with, with Israel where they had uh, you know, the land would return on the year of Jubilee to those who are the owners. And, and there was this connection there that we ever wanted to restore i think that's been abandoned to some extent i think it's gotten a lot worse is what i'm saying because now we have the totalitarians telling us why do you need to own anything you shouldn't you'll be happy right you'll you own nothing and be happy that is such a mere like a contradiction of what we were saying so um i've talked a lot dad what do you think well it goes back to what he was saying about the spoiled child of just wanting comfort so if someone will take care of me, then it's fine. I don't need to own anything. I don't have to have the responsibilities. That's kind of what uh, I kind of gathered out of that. When you own when you own something, you're responsible for it. And whether you're, you do well with it or not, you are still responsible. And he was actually putting out uh, property rights as the, the last holdout of rights. And that's in 1948 he was recognizing that. And I, I do agree with you, Jonathan, that... Um, we've lost that and it's not just what he had been saying about big business and government and cahoots with each other going that direction or the great reset but we've been losing uh property rights over the restrictions on what you can do with your property even in just the 30 years i've been here in in uh, wappingers falls there have been so many new regulations added on what you can do with your own land that you end up being stifled being able to do on your own land uh, what you'd like to do with it. Um, so, I mean, there's even improvements we'd like to make the property here. We're just not pursuing because it's such a hassle to go through uh, the local government on it. And then they have to be hassled by state and federal authorities and every, all their restrictions. So it's more than just who owns it. It's do you have even right to use it? So that last uh, metaphysical right he was talking about, I, I, I I agree with you, Jonathan. I think we've already lost it. Yeah. Very sad. I, hey, real quick before you go, Dave. Uh, John, can you hear me? All right. I think I don't I think we're gonna remove John from the stream. I'm sorry, John. I can't hear you, and it looks like your mic's muted. So if anyone else um who's listening, who's a patron, wants to come into the stream and uh, ask questions or make comments and just be part of the discussion. Uh, now is a good time to join, and I will um, I, I will let you in. All right, David, sorry to cut you off. Well, he, so he calls it the last medical physical. Um, he calls it the last metaphysical right. Well, you could also argue it's also, in some ways, the first metaphysical um, right, or one of the first, because you know Hebrew case law is kind of where we get the the idea of private property to begin with. Most of our um, you know law code if you march it back far enough, that's where you're going to get to. So it really is a biblical concept, private property. So it makes sense that that's what is being attacked uh, specifically to what 
you were saying about, you know, property in New York. So one of the reasons why we moved to, to another state was because of property taxes. Because when you're thinking about buying a home, you know, if you're paying 13, 14, some people I know, 19, $20,000 in property tax a year, you know, do you really own that land or are you just permanently renting it? Um, so I, I think you could argue in some ways that that right in a majority, maybe even of this country has already been kind of superseded. Um, another thing would be like, you're saying, what do you do on the land? So um, even here in Tennessee, if you want to um, uh, milk your cows and then sell the milk, well, you can't do that. Um, now you can do it for pets. You're allowed to sell it to, to feed your dog, but you can't do it for human consumption. So even when you want to do things on your own land or do things with the land that you have, um, even in so-called like conservative red areas, you still have a lot of the same, uh, the same restrictions. So that right, you know, and I, I mean, that's a, that's a small thing compared to, I want to put a shed up and I can't do that. But, um, you know, that, that right is under direct assault in almost every area. And if you look at the trends in people living, you know, I always, I always think it's fascinating. Uh, go on Google earth and go to China and zoom into their rural areas. So you can't see a lot of like street view because China doesn't have a lot of street view, but you can go to the middle of nowhere, thousands of miles from Beijing, and you can zoom into nothing but fields of wheat. And in the middle of those fields, you'll see an apartment building and everybody lives in that one apartment building. And there's maybe a, a restaurant and a gas station, um, but they're not living in farmhouses out in their fields. They're all living in one centrally controlled place. And that, that is, that's the trend here too. We're just a lot more comfortable in the way that we, uh, and the way that we do it, you know, we have villages, or um, you might call a uh, mick. I uh, was mick villages was uh, what, what I heard one person call it. So, um, but it, it's still, I think it's still the same assault. It's very relevant. Yeah, good point. Uh, I'm gonna let um, we. Oh, we have someone who called in the last time, coming back in. One of the patrons, uh, Earl, is back in. I'm gonna add him to the stream. By the way, John, if you can hear me, I saw you. You went. You came back in. Uh, just start up your camera so I know you're there. But anyway, Earl, go for it. Good evening, gentlemen. Um, I'm dressed for company tonight, so I, I figured I'd turn the camera on. Um, this has been a really, really fascinating uh, and in enjoyable discussion, and, and I'm learning a lot. This is a great book, and it's kind of scary how prophetic uh, Richard Weaver really was. Um. I guess my, my question had to do with both uh, Weaver's view of work in the modern era and his thoughts on property ownership as kind of the last bastion of a pre-materialist civilization or a, a, a pre-modern and anti-modern civilization. And the way you were discussing work and describing work as, you know, it's something you do and it's not it's not got a higher purpose. There's no real uh, meaning to it beyond just getting the cash to pay for whatever it is you're trying to buy that week or that month. Um, I think that ties in a lot to the uh, the kind of the anti anti work movement. Uh, have any of you heard of that? I have. Yeah, I have heard of it. We'll have time for more art. Right. Right. Uh, you know, define art. Yeah. But I, 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 I've wondered a lot about that because it seems like a lot of these anti-work people are talking about uh, low-level cog in the machine, 
you know, stocking shelves at a store for not much money, absurd turnover rates, people who don't show up for work and then you have to do their stuff on top of your own. And there's no real incentive um, or appreciation for that extra workload. And then combined with that, you have the uh, the real difficulty that a lot of younger people, um, you know, millennials, Gen Z, uh, have been having dealing with exploding rent prices, um, the cost of housing, not being able to buy property and have property of their own. And I, I think some of that ties into the the anti-work movement. You know, if you're just living in your parents' basement and you're not really getting anywhere in life, um, you know, why, why, why suffer through this low-level job with no way up or no way out if there's no hope for improvement materially on the back end, right? You know, it, it's not like you can stay at the company and work your way up, or at least in, in their minds it's not. Um, you, you're not going to be able to save up and get a house and get married and have your kids and, uh, you know, build your life that way. And I, I think a lot of this comes from hopelessness and despair and not just laziness or egotism. I mean, I'm sure that's I'm sure there's an element of that, but I, I think there's a genuine despair that a lot of this um, a lot of this is rooted in. Yeah. Am I, am I misreading that? No, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, it, it's not like one thing, too, right? So many people will, um, I mean, even Weaver, he, he's tracing one thing out as far as not, he, he blames nominalism for where we are at, but there's there's converging forces in history. There always are. And to, to I know what the movement you're talking about, it's among um, Gen Z specifically, and they don't think that they should have to work. So some of these uh, these low-level workers, you're right. And, and it and I think there, there's a point to be made that if you're on this low level cog in the machine type stuff and there's no it's not a calling, I should say, there's no um, there's you, you don't have that craftsmanship and that sense of purpose and calling in it, I guess, for I keep using the same terms, I guess. But there there's something beyond you that you're you're working for here. Um, then yeah, it takes all the pride out of it and you don't pursue excellence anymore. And you're not, you know, in, in many of these situations, your bosses, I, I think Weaver had a quote about, you know, your boss is no better than you with the er erosion of hierarchy. So it's like, I, I'm not going to work to make him look good. And, and everyone's kind of out for themselves. Yeah. And it, it's, um, it's a dismal situation, but you know, one of the things that I thought was really cool when I was reading this, a white pill moment is there is this localist movement going on to try to um, kind of like return to the, the ways that our ancestors used to eat, to go to farm markets, to make local crafts. There's all these Internet tools now that are connecting people even locally to uh, for, for business endeavors. Um, I I'm kind of positive about that. I don't know what any of you guys think. Uh, I'll leave you in here for, for a second here, Earl, too, if you want to weigh in. But, you know, do you, is that a solution, you think, to, to what Weaver's talking about? Because I know there's hippies involved in it, right? It's not all like right leaning people at all. But like there's a localist, like Jeffersonian ish almost thing going on. So I think I think among the millennials, just really quick, I think among millennials, especially this is like becoming really, really big. So you do see it with more like urban dwelling uh, even left-leaning 
you know, folks, especially younger people, you know, because in the Hudson Valley where we're from, you know, they'll, they'll come up from the city and pay like $700 to, you know, collect some eggs and milk a cow for the weekend and like stay in a barn. So there's like this, this longing for real, this longing for authenticity. I feel like in the conservative movement, though, that's that's kind of the divide. That's the split. It's a split between because people want to know what what can I do? What action <clears throat> can I take if we're not going to you know, if we're not we're not taking up arms to oppose the the forces that are oppressing us. Right. We're not um, you're, you're, you're telling me all I can do is I can uh, I can listen to the radio and then vote every four years. Like, that's all I got. OK, <laughs> well, I want something to do. Like, I want actions to take. And so localism is an action. That's the other things that you can do. I can get raw milk. I can get raw eggs. I can raw eggs. Don't eat them. Well, you can eat them, I guess. <laughs> uh, you know, I, yeah, I want meat. That is, yeah. So I guess, Dad, you you guys have kind of, you know, been on top of that for for a while. But um, uh, it's yeah. not a trend for him. Yeah. Yeah. That's just well, living. I admit part of that just comes from your grandfather's country roots. Uh and spending time with relatives out in the country, you didn't think about you. You had a Sears catalog, or you know, a J.C. Whitney catalog, or something like that, and you wait a long time to get anything. <clears throat> you you didn't have this instant gratification, and you took pleasure in simple things. You had a purpose in whatever your work was, and uh, even those in the low end of the totem pole, uh, so to speak, on. You know, if they don't take pride in what they're a proper pride in what they're doing because they're working for a, a greater purpose, I, you know, what I tell people as a pastor, I, everything I do and everything you're supposed to do is for for Christ. I don't care who signs your paycheck. You work for Christ. So you work unto him. But when it comes to buying local and everything else, there are deep roots. You don't find people in the country. Uh, looking for everybody else to supply them they're going to grow their they're going to have chickens they're going to have a cow they're going to grow their own crops they're going to at least have a garden they're going to have something they're going to exchange with their neighbors uh, yeah. and that was just something you always did you would i grew this you grew that we'll make an exchange and you know i'm glad i at least have a, a decent sized garden um to be able to instill that into you uh, as well as that we should look to self-sustain and yeah, we should buy local. I, you know, stay away from Amazon and all those, <laughs> stay away from these big corporations. Try to see if you can support someone local. Even if you pay more, it's, it's better. Yeah. That would be something I'd love to explore more. I we just don't have time right this second, I think, but that divide oh. you talked about between conservatives right now, where on the right, at least where mm. some are really mm. in favor of like, big companies doing what they want with their money and even if they have a million lob lobbyists and perks and stuff it's like well that's capitalism versus yeah. the proximity valuing the proximity <laughs> of those who are close to me and i i'm much in more in that latter camp that where R richard weaver is um yeah so anyway uh any, anything quick uh, to say there earl or Oh, well, just the uh, the normalization of corruption right oh the all the lobbyists that's just that's just business as usual right yeah that's that's a real True. problem. But you you actually discussed um, localism at, at least in some uh, vein with uh, John Moody, the the Tom yeah, Bombadil yeah. of yeah. Yeah, that was yeah, a, that was a great did. episode. Yeah, that was, was good. I'll probably put some some little clips of that out soon. But hey, thanks, Earl. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. God bless. Cheers. Bye bye. So let's see here. All right. 
John. John is back. So we're going to bring him into the stream. John, can you hear me? So got his uh I can see a, I can see a camera now. <laughs> and I think a, a, a maybe a palm over the the camera there. Microphone. There he is. Yeah, is your microphone on? Yeah, yeah, can you hear me? Oh yeah, I can hear you now. You're ah, good. you're like the, the blind man discussion. Jesus healed. I I see men as trees, but uh... <laughs> well, yeah, my my camera's not working properly. But a fantastic discussion tonight, and thank you so much for um, for sharing that information. I mean, it's it's just good to. And I think we lost. Did we lose John? Well, it froze. I really wanted to know what he was saying. He was saying it's good too, and uh, uh, well, maybe you could put it in the comment section. We could read it. Yeah, John, if you're hearing this, man, I'm so sorry. You, I don't know. I mean, I think I have a good connection. I don't know if it's your connection or software. If you, if you write a comment though it, on YouTube, I will go back and I will well, highlight it for everyone. So should be able to do um, it in the comment section. Yeah. Oh, yeah. If you do it in the comment section too on Streamyard, I'll I'll read it to everyone too. Yeah, I could do that too. You're right. The private chat. All right. Well, uh, let's keep going here. We have a um, two more chapters, and I think these will take a little shorter, uh, if I'm not mistaken. We're gonna go to chapter eight, the power of the word. And th this is where David, I'm just going to give it to David. I'll just read this and then you can talk. Uh, Weaver argues that language expresses transcendental categories of thought, not sensations. Today, ideas become psychological figments, not sensate. Sorry, psychological figments and words become useful signs. The physical becomes the sole determinant of what is. As materialism grows and things are exalted, words are depressed. <clears throat> Semanticists fear the ability of words to express prejudice and therefore aim to dissolve form and thereby destroy inclination in the belief that the result will enable a scientific manipulation. This is part of a broader attack on symbolism, including things like flags and clothing. We must reject looseness and exaggeration and educate ourselves in literature and rhetoric and logic and dialectic. All right, David. So um, one thing I would say about this is if you if you if you read this chapter and you're like, man, that's great. I want more. Um, read his most famous book, The Ethics, uh, The Ethics of Rhetoric. You'll get multiple chapters of this and you have to read it and reread it and reread it. And it's still um, it's still kind of hard to understand. So, um, yeah. So even I mean, I studied um, literature uh, like actually they would call it they called it critical literary theory. Um, in uh, college, and it was the class I had the hardest time with. So I also have, you know, more more difficulty with this chapter than many of the other ones. But um, so, like, trying to break it down into the most, I guess, I don't know, simple concepts that are possible. Um, so language transcends the physical, right? Because language is something that exists. Um, you know, it, it's, it, it comes from the mind. Right. And, um, I really, I feel like the best place to go is just like, what does, you know, what does it say in John one, right? In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. So, um, words have a way of, uh, conveying meaning that is transcendent of like the physical realm. So I think like 
at the baseline, that's kind of what he's getting to. Now, um, what will happen over time and what we've kind of experienced in our own, you know, recent history um, is ownership of language becomes a um, mechanism of control. And uh, for further reading on this and maybe kind of a more simple, like expressed a little more simply um, politics in the English language by um, uh, who wrote 19 uh, George Orwell is a good uh, essay to read. And he kind of gets into some similar themes. Um, but can you throw that slide back up really quick? Cause I just want, I just want to look at the, yeah. the last part. So, all right. Rejecting looseness and exaggeration. So one practical example of this, right. Um, now, <laughs> uh, when you take a class in, um, uh, English literature, okay. You have to have a rudimentary understanding of the Bible, but you also have to have an understanding of Greek so when you read even even like early 1900 era texts, you know, um, like modernist texts, you're still going to have all these references to biblical figures and you'll have all these references to um, classical Greek um, mythology. And that's that's going to be true across the board with all sorts of different literary categories. Shakespeare is packed full. You have to have, you basically have to have, if you're not familiar, you have to have a Bible and like the Iliad next to you to understand like half the references in, um, you know, in, in his works. So one of the things Weezer is getting to is to, to have culture, you have to have this kind of like underlying literary understanding to give you common context, right? Now we don't have it anymore. It's kind of worn away. So we have simplistic expression of ideas but we don't have that cultural um commonality of of literature right or of logic right you, you logic is something kind of that has to be shared we don't really have logic anymore we live in a very illogical um you know society uh so he's saying we have to get back to those things if there's any hope of stability or understanding one another now the opposite of that he's saying is looseness and exaggeration so um, the best example I can think of exaggeration or looseness would be like a word like literally. So literally now literally means figuratively. If I say I literally, I literally died, I literally died. I literally mean that I figuratively died. Now that word is basically, it doesn't mean anything anymore. There's no agreement on what it means because somebody who is older and was used to that word having more of like a, a, a firm context um, or a, a firm specific meaning, they're going to say, what, what are you what are you saying but you know the the, the millennial or the gen z or you know they're they literally died literally we all literally died so that's kind of where looseness now that's like a kind of a funny example but if you apply that to um you know the realm of politics then it gets scary because you'll hear you know um what did we hear what uh, another example so when covid kind of started we heard um stay safe Stay safe. Everybody stay safe out there. Stay safe. So stay safe. When I say that over and over and over again, what does that mean to stay safe? Like what is the context of staying safe? When would I say that to you? Well, I'd probably say that to you when you're driving home. Staying safe has more of like a physical component to it. That's that's the um, the semantic behind the word. That's kind of what it means. But when I say stay safe, I've now personified this like COVID virus to the point that now it is like physically after me. Stay safe out there. Because it would make more sense to say like, hey, stay healthy, because that healthy carries more contextual um, capital than safe. So now I've basically like weaponized that word. I've used that word because of a looseness. I've allowed it to be a, 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 to you 
I've allowed it to be used loosely, and now it's lost its real meaning and it's taken on a meaning that I assigned it. So what's yeah. what's the antidote? Well, we got to get back to a common literary logical framework. You also have to That's fight that stuff when it comes up. When someone uses something like that, you have to fight it individually wherever it comes up. Uh, I remember even Viz the doctor, and he said, "Stay safe." I said, "I'm not going to stay safe. I'm going to go live life." Yeah, you know, you you have to battle it, and you know, are you going to be able to win back the word to what it was? No, but you still have to battle it. Otherwise, you. That the more you lose the language, the the more confusion there is. You can't communicate, and I do believe that is one of the strategies that, that our adversary Satan does have, is to destroy our ability to communicate the truth. I think Weaver would have actually had a little stronger case if he actually believed the scriptures. Um, you know, he quotes from John one one, but you know, throughout it, it's obvious he actually doesn't believe um, it, it is from God. It's inspired by God, and therefore, it is something that we must learn from and it stays the same i spend yeah. my life translating uh and making sure the congregation understands the meaning of the original words when i'm explaining a text and that's all kind of dealing with what we were talking about here i want to make sure i'm clear in what i'm saying otherwise how would they know what god has said and not just me you know pontificating of what i think at the moment you don't need to hear musings from me you need to hear the word of god but that's true in all languages. We, If the word keeps changing meaning, it no longer communicates anything. You've lost it, and all you have now is confusion, and David's examples were good well, ones. His, he roots yeah. this, though, in uh, saying that it's an attack on symbols and meaning itself, that, it, that it's, a, uh, it, it's the denial that these words signify anything more than a personal experience. And in the moment, right, and, and not even taking into right. account the ways uh, of being that our ancestors shared with us, and they use the, these words to sometimes apply to similar experiences, we can't even really um, use them as an authority on the meaning of a word. Because the, the word, uh, I mean, there's so many examples of this. He uses democracy as an example. Um, he, I mean, the word woke, I mean, <laughs> it's, it's ridiculous, but that's, uh, that the it's totally changed the meaning of that word, even the tense. Um, but he, he says, I thought it was interesting. He talks about flags and dress. He says it's the same attack. And if you look at like a, um, on YouTube, there's these channels that'll show you life in the 1800s is one of them. Everyone should subscribe to it because they show these really early silent film videos. And some of them, like one of them is from New York city. And it's so good because, it's uh, I forget. It's like iron work, not iron workers. It's it's like um, people working on the railway or something. They're all in suits and they're dressed better than any of us dress, almost any of us to go to church. And they're doing their day job. And he he talked about how clothing expressed rank, how flags expressed like regional uh, and, and, you know, alliances, cultural, yeah, cultural significant things. <clears throat> and there's an attack on all of those things because there's bigotry embedded in them. And in our words, there's bigotry embedded. And so it, it, it's almost like the, this uh, ritual of casting out the demons that the linguists uh, have to have to. He doesn't call it. No, they're not linguists. What does he call them? Uh, man, I'm drunking on the word. I pull up the slide. Semanticists. Semanticists. Yeah, they go back and they um, to cast the demons out of these these terms. They reappropriate them and or they, they, they stop using certain terms and coin new ones. And um, 
and and yeah, the, the effect is confusion, but the motivation he says is a, really an attack on objective truth that there's these categories, broad categories of being that we can share with each other. Um, and that, and language just boils down now to, uh, individual experience. And, um, yeah, it's just, it, it, it's crazy because it seems so like you gotta take two Advil to understand it. Cause it's so abstract, but you see it playing out in our society in real time among people who don't even understand what Weaver's arguing, but they're, they're playing along with this whole thing. Yeah, the discussion may be abstract, but the reality of it is, is every day. Look what, look what the, uh, well, we'll use the newer term, the woke people do with uh, pronouns. Yeah. Yeah. Pronoun. Yeah. That, that's actually a great example. Yeah. Yeah, pronouns are even, you can't even the example. It is the example. Yeah. And we, if we ever lived to see this time, he'd be like, I told you so. All right. We're going to bring John back into the stream real quick. If that's all right. Cause John's uh, John's back here. John, can you hear me now? Got his, uh, there he goes. Yes, I, I can hear you. I'm having some technical difficulties. Yeah, I, I've been there. Sorry, I was. We were <laughs> hanging with bated breath for what you were saying earlier, and then you were cut off in the middle of the sentence. Yeah, my my, my phone died, but um, I, I just wanted to say how much I appreciate such a, a a good and cultured conversation tonight. Oh, thank you. Yeah, that that means a lot. Yeah, where where are you uh, calling from? Uh, I'm calling from uh, Central Virginia. Oh, okay. Well, I lived in Lynchburg for a while, so yeah. Um, I, I do miss Virginia sometimes, but uh, in <laughs> it, especially in the winter um, when it gets really cold. But it's actually been pretty mild here in New York this this year. But yeah, yeah. my pathogens yeah. are coming up. This is bad. Yeah, I noticed the buds on the trees are starting. Near what? Me. Yeah. Yeah, and it's gonna drop down to single digits uh, into the week. Yeah, <laughs> that'll change things. Yeah, it was yeah. almost fifty today. But anyway, did you have any other? Uh, do you have a question, John, or any comment you wanted to uh, make? No, I just I, I you know the discussion that you're talking about the difference of words and things like that. <laughs> sim simply, uh, you know, they did change have to change the definition of vaccine, for example. Yeah. Um, exactly right. You know, and all. All of these, all of these words, keep keep changing, and it's it's basically to to keep you keep you off off your point, right? So that if your communication means nothing, then you know it's just you know it's it's a a, a piece of the truth wrapped in the lie, right? Yeah, yeah. No, it's a it's a good point. Um, I know one of our. Uh, the folks commenting right now on the YouTube asked a question that I think is a really intriguing. They said, do you think biblical Christians will be the ones who are able to communicate effectively due to their common literary basis? Perhaps that's the strength of classical Christian education. That's an interesting that's thought. Cause we all have the book, right? We all have the Bible. We have a common um, tradition to appeal to. I'm wondering though, is if what Weaver's talking about here has made its way into Bible translations and into it has to some degree. Well, yeah. How so? Bond servant. Oh uh, yeah. <laughs> we can't some call of people it's the translation of you know to make it more acceptable to your culture. And others, there are different ideas about how to translate, and that becomes a real problem. Not just you know translating to English. We certainly have those, but you're in another culture. You're trying to get the first scripture out. How do you 
how do you translate it? Yeah. Um, I know that uh, I have a friend who was sitting next to, and I don't even know if I want to say the organization because the arrows are going to come at me. It was a Bible, it was a major, probably the major Bible translation ministry. And he was on a plane with this person and they were sitting next to each other and he started um, talking about social justice. And this guy was extremely uh, progressive. And he was, he was a translator though. And he was talking about um, how basically he wanted to change words or change the way certain words were translated to accommodate a social justice message and was very blatant about it. Um, and it just, you know, I, I don't want to give any more detail to the story just because I don't want to smear a ministry that may be doing good work, but have a, a guy who's not great in the ranks, but it just amazed me. I'm like, really? I mean, the objective should just be what is the closest approximate in the language to the original word. And because we're trying to convey a concept here, we're trying to convey something that we shared with the people back in those days and not something novel in our own day. Um, so, well, you do uh, have, that's been going on for quite a while, even in English translations, uh, the NIV had been a, uh, you know, their, their, their method translation made it easy to read, not necessarily good for study, but then they wanted to change pronouns. Yeah. Uh, and that's even coming up in some of the more conservative translations. They want to change pronouns or add words to make it more acceptable to the current generation. It's like when, when Tim Keller sees, uh, I think it's Mishpat for justice, and then is it Zadik for righteousness in the Old Testament. And he's like, he's like, if you see them together, you translate it social justice. It's like, what? So talk about taking a modern term that means a specific thing in our context and then in you know imposing that on the past. Um, well, hey, John, thanks for joining us. I appreciate it. So, um, well, let's keep going. Um, Hannah Smith, you're on deck. I noticed you're there. Um, let's, let's just go to the next chapter real quick. And, and then, uh, this is the last chapter, piety and justice. Weaver argues that piety toward nature, our fellow man and the past should be restored as man puts himself in the place of God. A disrespect for nature manifested in things like belief in the equality of the sexes leads to tyranny and destruction. Weaver asks if we can restore civilization by accepting that one cannot obtain more than one puts in. Comfort is seductive and must cede to a sterner ideal, and duties must be accepted before freedoms. So I think in this final chapter, Weaver's main point, this is where he drives home the importance of boundaries. And he's been doing that the whole book, but in this particular chapter, I think, He's very direct about the, the, this whole issue, and he basically indicts modern man for thinking that they can or should manipulate nature. And he, he uses actually the Manhattan Project as an example of this, but that it's only there for us to um, to use and, and to well, there's, there's no barrier, I should say. There's no respect. There's no barrier that one must not cross. We're seeing that now with transgender surgeries. If Weaver could only live to see it, that w there's no respect for order anymore in nature and that we need to conform to the order that God has put there. And so it's how do we manipulate things to conform to our imaginations, our desires. Right. And um, so, you know, 
he, he gives example here and says a fascinating example. Again, it could have been written yesterday, but he says this notion of the equality of the sexes, that women are the same as men in every respect. He goes, that just leads to tyranny and destruction. It's like, oh, man, that's exactly what we're seeing. He wrote this in 1948. This is right after World War II. And he's saying he's already seeing this. Um, so um, let's. Well, I'll, I'll pitch it to either of you and then we'll bring Hannah in. But, uh, you know, w w what stood out to you about this chapter? Because this is his clarion call at the end to uh, something applicable. <clears throat> and I would say for those looking for application, he doesn't give much. He gives a little, but it's it, it's more of like, guys, we got to just we got to get back to the things that are that are rooted. Um, so, yeah, what do you think? I uh, kind of agree where his conclusions go to, though I, I have to point out he does not have the biblical understanding of creation. Um, you know, we do have a mandate given by God on our responsibilities over creation. Uh, I think he gives good warning about the exploitation and the idea that man can play the role of God. That part, I think, uh, is really good. And, uh, I agree with that, uh, his conclusions at it, but he'd have a stronger case if he actually... I think believe the scriptures. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I don't know what makes you think he doesn't believe. I mean, he he's not a um, uh, well, he's not, not a born again Christian, right? But page one fifty five, uh, even the violence belief that creation or nature is fundamentally good, uh, the ultimate reason oh, yeah, for yeah. the mystery. So there, there's he has a flaw in his thinking, and it kind of goes throughout the book. And he'd actually make a much stronger case if he actually did believe the scriptures and uh built off of that you know because when i read I, I read that too and i thought what he was saying was that that there's a good order to creation that the intention god created it good and but i think what you're saying is that because he's right about that there is this order to creation correct but that there's there's been a fall and i know weaver acknowledges a fall that, that that's one of the main yeah. bases for his political <laughs> um sentiments is that man because he doesn't like optimism he doesn't like thinking too much of man because man's corrupt but but you might be right that he exempts creation from that corruptness to some extent maybe well I don't know. it came out a couple other places in the book uh I, I don't know where he actually stands on it but he seemed to give kind of a a pass to evolution things like that and my and my my point really is something i actually said last week too is um <clears throat> i i find he's a very good writer i find it's what he says are, are things you really do need to think about. Both of you boys uh, uh, attested to how much he helped you and your thinking. I'm just saying is that because he's not there from a biblical standpoint, his case is weaker than he would have made if he actually believed those things. And that is true here when it comes to, uh, you know, piety and justice and his uh, his writings on that and where he goes with it, I, I, his conclusion is a good one, and we do need to stand against it. And he, you know, correctly points out, man, well, he doesn't point out this way, but man is not God. Right. And we need to recognize that he calls it a mystery, but God has already told us exactly where it comes from. He created it. Yeah. And, you know, <clears throat> we are those who are trying to understand God and the world he's created, uh, the homeschool groups that we've. Yeah, well, even the current one is that's kind of what we keep pushing. We want our the children to understand God according to how he's created it and then go from there because that is the what he's been calling transcendental. 
God's created. He has an order. There is a hierarchy. Man has a role that God has given to us in creation as well as within our social relationships. He's described those things. Those are things that are going to, uh, th those are the only places that you're going to find hope for um, uh, any kind of recovery is mm -hmm. bringing people back to these basic truths. So he is taken from a philosophical side and he ends up with the same conclusion because, I mean, the reality is, yeah, man is, is fallen into sin or fallen. He's not perfect. And man is because of his corruption is going to mess things mm -hmm. up. Yeah. Well, yeah, he, I, I would agree that he, um, he keeps coming back to essentially what, what a restore restoration in, um, belief in God and living in his world and Christianity would, would accomplish, I think, uh, the overturning of the modernity that he's writing against. Hannah, are you, uh, in the chat? Hey, I'm here. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's good to see you again. Yeah. Um, good to see you all. Yeah. And you know, I, I've noticed something that, uh, is the second time I've done this. Right. And, uh, it's mostly the same people who, uh, <laughs> And, and of all the people who uh, could participate, I think it's it's the brave people who don't mind letting people see their face on camera publicly. So yeah, you're one of those brave mistake, people. But oh well. <laughs> so what's on your mind? Um, well, the last chapter made me think. Have any of you read Mortimer Adler's How to Read a Book? How to read? Yeah. Oh, I've, I've been heard of read it. that because I want to know how to read books. I, I know. I really wish I read it before college, but. Uh, he was one of the um, kind of, I guess, founders, starters of the, the great books of the Western tradition. And he wrote this book, I think, originally in like 50s or 60s, and it, it was updated in the 70s. But his whole premise was that our literacy rates were going up and the quality of our literacy was going down. Um, and he used like very specific metrics by which we should judge writing and our own reading comprehension. But I think he also, because obviously as one of the, you know, collaborators in the books of the great Western tradition, he also believed in having a common literary heritage. So that might be interesting further reading. That's a um, fascinating point. I think if I'm yeah. not mistaken, I think it was Weaver I was reading who was saying, who was kind of mocking this idea that with more literacy can't comes more uh, moral sophistication and knowledge. Yes. And, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And, and more uh, Adler, Adler talks about Adler's not a, a Christian. Um, he's Jewish, but he, uh, I think like an atheist Jewish even, but he, he um, made a similar point. I, I think you're right. I think Weaver was a little bit more, um, condescending about it <laughs> yeah, yeah um but you know adler was more i think more descriptive um at least briefly he didn't go into as much depth because the whole point of this particular book is obviously to help people to rise to the level of the great authors and one of the things that i really appreciated about it was he talked about criticism and he talked about how today and this was again back in like the 40s and then the 70s how criticism is seen as a negative and he talked about how actually criticism needs to have like it has both positive and negative qualities and even neutral like if, if you don't know if you're um unsure that is a criticism as well 
but you also need to hmm. reassess if your ignorance is your fault if or not right <laughs> or if you just you have you know you haven't been able to make a decision but what regardless of um like where your neutrality is you should be able to explain why you are neutral on that issue and what questions you have further as opposed to just kind of letting like neutrality be your virtue um so a lot of interesting stuff like that it might uh, i think it definitely so you're saying you want the next book that <laughs> i discussed to be how to read a book. Well, I wouldn't mind reading it again, but <laughs> no, I mean, I, I definitely think anyone who's interested on that topic should read yeah. it. And if you, if you want to add it to the list, it's definitely worthy. Um, and it goes nicely with that idea. I guess a question I would have more along the last chapter and uh, the conversation you were just having, I, in terms of piety and moving forward and starting to think of building and not just responding. I think a lot of people are kind of in that place where, okay, we want to build systems or we want to build um, relationships or communities that are more generationally focused and not just responding to our current generation. And I think that's a good thing, but it also seems that a lot of um, different denominations, different sects are focusing on um eschatology and saying you know that that is the main reason why oh that's a good point yeah i'm curious yeah. do you think that that's accurate i mean I, I definitely think it contributes i know myself i'm still kind of undecided more i'm trying to I, so so I, I i don't know how to articulate it i know what you're you're how are you connecting it though how can you articulate that yeah. for me the uh, post yeah. it's the post mills yeah, yeah, yeah we're talking mills. about post mill people who are like fastidious and like well, i've heard it on different right. sides I, I would say mostly i've heard it on pre-mill and post mill you know a mill they're more the neutral ground i guess <laughs> yeah they're they're, they they're like we transcend as, uh, we transcend this debate yes. we transcend this argument they're like what um, is an apple no, i've heard it from both sides but it, it, I think it does, personally, I was kind of raised reformed, but also had a pre-mill um, dispy background. So I wasn't even kind of clear where the lines were, but I realized even just understanding of covenant theology and how that, how that influences your eschatology. Um, but I, I do think even Weaver's point his whole point in the beginning was that we don't have a common view of human destiny, right? So that right. made me think of it. Um, and then it, it does seem to be coming up now. And I think some of that is people are attributing some of the decay in our culture to views on the end times. So the reform people will kind of right. accuse the you know predispensationalists of just trying to get everyone in the lifeboats and not really care about what we build, just let the ship sink. And then, you know, maybe the <laughs> the pre-mill people will kind of blame the more reformed people. And I know reformed is beyond eschatology. Like it's more post-mill, I guess, a-mill types on um, not doing enough evangelism or... So that's one area that's like the more obvious. But I'm curious if you can think of other areas um, that it, it might affect. Because it does seem to be something that people are pushing more. And it also complements what we were saying. And by pushing, pushing, you're talking about um, like practical ways of 
you know, like applying. Having a unified eschatology and then, yes, applying it in our daily lives. Like, what does that mean practically for how we live? Right. And how important is it that we as like an American church have a unified eschatology? So, well, when the rapture happens, everyone's going to (laughs) know. The thing is, what we were talking about though is is the denial that there's even a telos like there's not a there's not a purpose so we create our own purpose and it becomes utilitarian so it's man-centered so any so you're talking about something though a little different i think you're talking about like the different flavors of trying to make sense of what revelation's teaching and all no matter what flavor you pick there's we're all heading towards the consummation of all things and so christians are already broadly united we know there's going to be an eternal state there's going to be a heaven and hell new heavens new earth so um i think i mean i don't know what weaver would say but i would think if he understood all of that he would say well that's you know these are not significant differences in as it pertains to um our destiny and and where we're headed The, the thing though that you said that made me think oh wow though this is a good point is that I have run into people who think, who seem to think for some reason, they oversimplify. They think that what, as you said, it's your eschatological view that determines everything else, your specific eschatological view. And it's not that those things aren't determinative to some extent. (laughs) Like I'm sure they, they do affect you, but I pointed out to some hardcore postmill guys. I'm like, look, Jerry Falwell and Pat Robertson have done more in the last 40 years for Christians engaging the, the political realm than anyone else, probably mm-hmm. uh, Francis Schaefer may be in there. And, and I don't, his eschatology was probably more covenantal, but, but, yeah. but you know, th- those two were dispensational pre pre mill guys. Yeah. So I'm just like, I, I don't know that that it's, it's not determinative in my mind because even the dispensational premillennialist who thinks a rapture is coming still um, doesn't know when that's going to happen and is still trying to be a good steward. It's it's an ethics mm-hmm. issue, not eschatology. They're, they're trying to steward right. what they have right now well. Um, and so it's what I find, I guess, interesting, though, is the fracturing mm-hmm. of even the church right now, that um, there's there's a lot of different factions who think that sometimes slight variations give them the whole key, right? The key mm-hmm. to understanding the return to christendom or to the overturning mm. of secularism or all these these maladies we have it's like well we have the key over here and it's pre-mill right. or we have the key over here and it's usually something that's like baptism <laughs> on the periphery right it's it, yeah. yeah baptize your babies you're not baptizing your babies and that you know and then they'll become transgender i know I didn't, anyway, <laughs> I'm, just, I'm, kidding. I'm kidding i set you up that's okay <laughs> yeah um which <laughs> so yeah, I mean, it's it's like, but there's there's really basic core things here, like fundamental things that all Christians should share in common mm-hmm. that would overturn the secularism we're in. Just believing there's a God who's spoken transcendently, given us barriers and laws and responsibilities, and and that's what we were saying's been lost. And yeah. uh, so, yeah, but but I do find that fascinating though, because because you brought it up in a way that I haven't really thought about it as deeply. That it, it is these kind of periphery or niche things, mm-hmm. brand things, right? That it, that people think are going to be the that that they're the key that mm-hmm. fits the hole that will overturn all the evil around us. Like I don't know what, you, what anyone else thinks of that, or if well, I mean, or, I feel like I mean, I I would have considered myself part of the young, restless, reformed 
kind of contingent when I was, you know, back in my oh, young Gordon. <laughs> Who's that? Um, he's, he's still there. Um, he's, he's not super, you know, he's not super young anymore, but he's pretty rough. rough but I, I, it, I remember just being like incredibly disappointed because I thought it was the, we're going to go take the world for Christ kind of mm. thing. And then um, in 2018, after, you know, the, a, a series of conferences on, that centered around like social justice issues. It was like, wait, you guys are all just saying what like I'm hearing in college at like yeah. my extraordinarily liberal college. You, you, you guys, I, and I really thought that mm -hmm. all man, the only important thing was you had to believe that, um, you know, that, that salvation was, was predeterminative, right? You had to believe that, that you had to believe in predestination. If you believe that man, everything else is going to fall into place. Like mm -hmm. that is the linchpin. That's the one thing that's the key. And that's how I would have judged pretty much every teacher I listened to everything else, you know, but like this particular thing, that's the thing that you need. And then I watched pretty much every, you know, with a few exceptions, pretty much every teacher that I really latched onto and, and, you know, all went woke. model go woke and like completely uh, yeah. like, sub, you know, <laughs> subserve yeah. the same principles and, and, and actually really undermine that doctrine. So, you know, like, okay. All right. So that, that wasn't clearly, there was more going on than just that doctrine. Yeah. And we can't make anti-wokeness the the barometer either. Although yeah. I think that is a barometer. Like, are you willing to stand against this evil movement? It, it can't be the one thing we were like, well, he's not woke. Therefore, this, this is, I think, what's getting people in trouble right now. And I, I'm just I guess I'll just say it. <laughs> and I'm going to say it as carefully as I can. But with this whole thing with James Lindsay last week, some of some of you might know I'm talking about. Some of you don't. Um, you know, praise God that there's an atheist who. Um, and someone, by the way, told me he's agnostic, so I don't, I don't know whether, but he seems to be okay being called an atheist online. So whether he's atheist or agnostic, he's not a Christian, right? He's not a believer. And he's done some great work on identifying uh, the issues with critical race theory and, and a number of other things that are happening right now. And, um, and and that's great, you know, right? We can We can glean from that. We can glean from Richard Weaver, even though he was not a born-again Christian. At least there's not evidence that he was. <clears throat> Um, however, because, you know, he, James Lindsay is against social justice, I saw some Christians really excusing things that he was he, horrible things, in my opinion, uh, things he was saying uh, that, were, that were just raunchy and terrible um, because, well, he's against our enemies, though. Right. And and I think we got to be careful of that with Joe Rogan and with Bill Maher and with Jordan Peterson and with. You know, the list just goes on and on with all these these guys who are, are more kind of actually they were on the left like 10 years ago and they still would be except for the left's gone, you know, more left. And they 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 become rock stars on the right for some reason, because they're brave enough, I guess, to uh, disagree with some current uh, initiative that the modern left innovation, the left wants to foist on us. And. We just have to be so careful not to just follow someone full, you know, speed ahead, justify their actions, make them our guru just because, well, they agree with us on this one point we feel strongly about because in 10 years, things may change. Other issues may become also very important. And, you know, that person may they that movement even you might have been part of, you know, was insufficient. And so um, I would just say we have one sufficient authority, right? That is the word of God. And 
that's where we have to constantly be going back to. And the people who imbibe that the deepest are wise people. And that's who we should make our role models. So, yeah. <clears throat> anyway, I went off on a rant because you brought that up, but I'm, I'm glad you did. So, yeah, yeah, yeah thank the, you. Uh, the enemy of my enemy is a co-belligerent, not necessarily my mm -hmm. friend. Right. Yeah. You know, um, <clears throat> something that did kind of change it used you still see it with some, uh, especially among those who actually are fundamentalists, true fundamentalists, not the what they've been called. Uh, <laughs> MacArthur would be in that camp. We recognize that, uh, and I would be in that camp. We recognize that I don't have to agree with uh, another believer on every point, including my eschatology, other than the fact that they also believe in a physical return of Jesus. And there's the mm -hmm. end point. Yeah. We recognize there is a purpose in my life that transcends the here and now for a purpose that is going to be eternal. And I think that may be what Weaver's really getting at is there is an eternal purpose to our existence, not just the here and now. And man thinking that he can control everything in the immediate present is he makes a lot of uh, serious errors. That's where the mRNA vaccine mess is has led us we think we're going to be god and we forget that there is a an end that transcends all these things so we had all sorts of people dying alone in hospitals rather than being right. comforted by having their family there to pray with them and encourage them and and uh hold their hand you know we we were not gods we're looking mm -hmm. forward to what god has and when it comes to eschatology if that is kept in mind that even whether it's all mill pre-mill or post-mill we are all holding fast to a physical return of Christ and that uh, there is a consummation of the ages, then we will be able to work together. If we end up fighting um, in an improper way about mm -hmm. those issues, and I will fight for a, a pre-trib, pre-mill position, but I'm not going to be obnoxious about it. I'm just going to keep going back to scriptures, which is why I'd want anybody uh, who have a, a different eschatology to do the same thing with me is, well, what does scripture say? Mm -hmm. You know, that's what we're after. But when it comes to what Weaver's talking about culturally, we're looking for an endpoint. The endpoint is Christ's return. Which Weaver doesn't ever talk about. <laughs> so, <laughs> no. Um, but he is looking for an endpoint, and it's not something mm -hmm. here. Yeah. He, he, just the idea that there's a, another world that we should be ordering ourselves in the light of is yeah, just that's his point. That, that we're, we're down to such fundamental, basic things right now. Yeah. But it's uh, we've been going now over two hours on the live stream, almost two hours in two minutes here soon. So we're going to say bye to Hannah. Thanks, Hannah. Good night. Appreciate Good night. It. Um, yeah, uh, I, I would say final thoughts, but I think I'm shot. So um, I just want to say thank you for participating in the discussion. Everyone who's commenting and also uh, Dad and David and uh, everyone who called in. And um, oh, let's see. We have. I'm seeing if one person's going to come in here. If they, it's got to be quick, if they do, okay. So they're not going to come in. All right. Well, um, yeah. Thank you once again. And for those who are looking to read this book, um, I would suggest getting a hard copy if you can and taking it slow. Uh, it's a good book just to understand the times we live in, and I think it'll open your eyes to some extent. Um, next books uh, that we might do, I'm not sure yet um, because I think some people have emailed me. They've said they really like this and. Um, maybe we'll take a, a step 
down, <laughs> not not so philosophical, maybe something else. I haven't decided yet. Uh, but well, David um, and I would go for something historical. <laughs> yeah. Well, I was thinking of how could we do a biography, but I'm like, how would we discuss a biography? That's I don't know. Um, easy. So like, you, you think it's easy? Oh. Easy. <laughs> maybe a uh, classic. Hayden literature. Jamestown, the island at the center of the world. <laughs> Yeah, well, that that's a little too involved. Um, yeah, we'll figure something out though. If if you have a suggestion for a book, please put it in the comment section. Let us know what book you'd like uh, that that's meant a lot to you. One of the ones I'll just tell you this that I was leaning towards, and I don't know if we'll do it. Is how shall we then live? It is not as dense as Weaver at all, um, and I've read it a few times, and I think it's also though very formative and very good. Now there might be some things I might even disagree with a little bit on it. I'm not sure yet. Um, I have to read it again, but because I've changed a little since I read it the last time. But I, I still think it's a great book, and um, that might be a good one to, to go over. Well, that's a wrap. Hey, thanks uh, once again, everyone. God bless. I hope you have a good evening. Bye now. Bye-bye. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Coriant has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Coriant has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of plan investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Coriant's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Coriant.com. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member? For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.